There is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us when the radiance of heaven came to rescue the lost. You called the sheep without a shepherd to leave their distress. For your streams of forgiveness and the shade of your rest. So what is compassion? Compassion means a suffering for another. It's a sensation of sorrow animated by the distress or misfortunes of another person. It's pity or commiseration. Compassion is a mixed passion. It's a, a compound of love and sorrow. Compassion is born out of love and concern for another person. Romans 12:15 it says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Compassion is a fellow feeling that we take on the burdens emotionally, spiritually of another person. It's a selfless thing. Compassion seeks to assuage the suffering of another person. Compassion is more than just sympathy. Jesus demonstrated compassion throughout his ministry. When we think about the earthly ministry of Christ, though, we must remember that the purpose of Christ was to do what? Reveal God, reveal the invisible God. So when we talk about Christ's compassion, we need to recognize God's compassion. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 49, look at verse 15. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she might forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. That's something. So God compares in his word his compassion to the compassion of a woman for her baby, a mother for her baby. And as amazing as it might sound that a mother would forget her child, God is even more compassionate that he would never forget us. So compassion was fundamental to the earthly ministry of Christ. In fact, this it was this compassion that distinguished his ministry from uh, the vengeful Messiah that everybody was looking to him to be, right? That he was supposed to be this Messiah coming in vengeance. But in fact, he was a, a compassionate Messiah. When we read these stories in the King James, it uses a phrase that I really like. It says that Christ was moved with compassion, that he was moved with compassion. And you get this sense that, you know, it wasn't just a simple decision. It was something that moved him. Go to Luke chapter 7, Luke 7, and look at verse 12. It says, as he approached, and he is Jesus, and as Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So you can appreciate this woman's tragedy, that this woman was already a widow, and now she had lost her son. So this woman was alone, alone in this world. Her whole family was gone. It says, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding area. So this was more than just having sympathy or feeling badly for this woman. 
Compassion meant putting forth effort to assuage this woman's grief. And it's interesting to note that when you go through and you study this word compassion in the Gospels, you'll see that every time that Christ was moved with compassion, it was followed by a miracle, which is interesting, isn't it? So there was first the heart and then the miracle. And I think that's so important here that we have to recognize. You know, our God is a lot of things, but our God is a loving and compassionate God. And those aspects show up in his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the father. Well, that's clearly not talking about physical. It's talking about aspects like compassion. Now, when we look at Jesus Christ and we look at his compassionate life, we see God. We see God. Absolutely. Jesus was loving this poor woman. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. We live in a world that truly needs more compassion, not less. Matthew 9, look in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. That really concerned Jesus. It really burdened his heart. He had a sincere compassion for the people, and that motivated him to heal them and to bless them and to call them to repentance. Jesus was moved with compassion. That compassion bypassed his deliberate will that it was something that welled up within him. There's another record in here where it says in the Gospels that says he was filled with compassion, and I like that also. He was filled with compassion. It says in verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And I think this is a good thing to think about. You know, we can be motivated by a variety of different motivations when we read in the word of our responsibility to go out and preach the gospel. But I think that there's a proper motivation of compassion, that we look at this dying world around us and we should be compassionate. I think this is one of the reasons why we need to watch how much we become politically in, uh, invested in our in our society, in our culture. There is a place for politics, but we can become consumed with it. And I need to maintain my ability to have great compassion on a sinful people and to lead them to repentance. That's certainly how Jesus was. He recognized the enemy's snare, didn't he? He recognized that people with the best of intentions were oftentimes ensnared by Satan's wiles. So we need to understand that You know, we have the gospel, and the gospel is the only light in this dark and perverse age, and we need to have compassion on people. Go to Luke chapter 15. This is the the story of the prodigal son. I think, you know, and I agree with this notion that why are we calling him the prodigal son when we should be recognizing the forgiving father, right? You know? Uh, but I, I do get the point that the product, the prodigal son, we identify with the prodigal son because all of us at one point or, or another in our lives has been prodigal in ourselves. We've been wayward. We've been out in our wilderness walk and it's God's love that calls us back. Look in verse 17, Luke 15, 17. It says, when he, the prodigal son came to his census, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion. He was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son, or the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Do you really get the heart of this father? I mean, it's just amazing, you know, and I suppose you don't have to be a parent to understand it, but parents can especially understand it when, you know, they have a a child who is, you know, bent on self-destruction or just oriented in the wrong way. And then all of a sudden the lights go on and the son comes home or the child comes home and, and there's no greater joy to a parent. I mean, it's just thrilling. Go to first Peter chapter three. And the idea here is that our God is a forgiving God. He's a compassionate God. He doesn't sit up there and just cross his arms and tap his foot and, and condemn us all the time. That's not what God's all about. That never was God's heart. Even in the Old Testament, that was never God's heart. First Peter chapter three, first Peter three. You know, there was a book written uh, back, I think it was 1700s, called uh, Being in the Hands of an Angry God. And I thought, what an unfortunate title. What an unfortunate title. Even in the Old Testament, before Jesus Christ, I never got that sense of God. Never. There are times, certainly, when God is angry, but his default is compassion and love. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another and be sympathetic. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but rather with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. So, I mean, that's one of the unique aspects of Christianity, I think, is uh, is that we love our enemies, that we're willing to endure persecution and still love people that we don't respond with insult to insult, right? We don't repay evil with evil. Jesus certainly didn't, right? I always think of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, right? And he looked after his mother. Here was a man hanging on the cross, looking after his mother and making sure she was taken care of, looking at the people and forgiving them. That's compassion. Go to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah 7, Zechariah, there's Zechariah, there's Zephaniah, Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 7, look at verse 8. It says, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Right? Isn't that something? But when we talk about compassion, we need to recognize that compassion has its enemies, and I'll explain what that means. 
we must keep in mind that true compassion is a manifestation of love. It's a manifestation of love. It's born out of a heart of godly love. Certainly people of the world show compassion. I think this is part of being created in the image of God. That, you know, people who have never heard anything about Christ and have never heard anything about God can show compassion, can't they? I mean, that's that's just a beautiful aspect of humanity. There's a lot of pretty horrible things about humanity that you can, you know, enumerate. But compassion is one of those good things. You know, people, even on the battlefield, you hear these stories of an enemy having compassion on another enemy. I mean, I think of uh, this one story. It's kind of a famous story during World War II. It was a B-17 bomber that was coming back from a bombing run. So it was these, uh, this American airplane that had gone over to Germany and dropped its bombs on Germany and in the process got shot up and it was barely limping home. And it, the whole fighter squadron had left this B-17 behind. There was no fighter escort. There was nothing. This B-17 is flying home, and a German fighter plane came flying up next to him and looked over. And, I mean, he could have shot this plane down easily. And what did he do? He had compassion on the eight crew member of this plane and let them get home. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you you could have been filled with vengeance. You, uh, this person could have been filled with vengeance, a lot of other motivations, but he chose to be compassionate. And I, uh, so you see this in humanity. It's certainly not uniquely Christian, but Christians ought to do it best. <laughs> because why? Because we have Christ in our souls, right? So the, the point here that I want to make is that true compassion, true godly compassion comes out of a strong and a whole character. All right. There is fullness to true compassion. When Jesus was moved with compassion for the multitudes, that they were wayward and wandering and scattered without a shepherd, Jesus had no ulterior motives. He wasn't using compassion to, you know, do something else. And uh, I'll explain more of why I say that. I think of Romans chapter 12, 9, which says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I like um, the REV translation. The love you have, let it be without hypocrisy. Utterly hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And I thought that was interesting. In the same sentence there, you're using love and hate, right? So love means that you hate certain things. And that's where we get this idea of loving the person and hating the, the sin. If we were to cling to good but refuse to hate evil or vice versa, a person's love would be hypocritical, right? It would be hypocritical. We're supposed to love that which is righteous, but we are supposed to abhor that which is evil. And that's very important for us. True compassion not only loves the person, true compassion hates the sin that injures and oppresses that person. Does that make sense, everybody? We hate the sin. And compassion doesn't care how you define sin. It cares about how God defines sin, okay? True compassion cares about how God defines sin. Now, there is a compassion, and we see it a lot in our culture today, that is a counterfeit of godly compassion. Many of us know this word enabling, enabling, and it is a counterfeit for compassion. 
So what is enabling? Well, a person who is an enabler is someone who accommodates or excuses or even denies the dysfunctional behavior of another person. And that, and that person, this enabler believes that by doing this, they are being compassionate or empathetic. So take, for instance, an addict, whether it was a drug addict or alcoholic or porn addict, whatever. And somebody who's been addicted to whatever, it's something in their life. An enabler is somebody who feels with their false compassion that being compassionate means taking the addict's responsibility for them, paying their bills, cleaning their houses, filling their car with gas, or buying their groceries. Or an enabler will tell lies for the addict and call in sick for the the addict when the addict is too hungover for work. Or an enabler makes excuses for the addict's behavior, um, perhaps how they act out in public. They make excuses that the addict has been perhaps working a lot of hours and his behavior is due to stress, right? It's lying for the addict. Or enabling is bailing an addict out of jail or out of financial difficulty or cleaning up after the addict when they have shown up badly in a situation or even accepting part of the blame for the addict's bad behavior or avoiding issues that need to be addressed out of fear the addict will become angry. So this is this idea, this false compassion, and we see it a lot in our, our culture. And it's not just in the case of substance abuse either. A lot of times in the desire for goodwill and fellow feeling with somebody, many of us enable one another's sins. Now, to make sure that we're clear here, there are plenty of times where God will wink at my sins, right? If God came down on me for everything that I did wrong, it would be a mess. And likewise, we're supposed to be long-suffering with one another. You know, parents have to pick their battles wisely, when to speak up, when to let things slide. It's just not important over the grand scheme of things. Well, that's how God is with us. That is not enabling because ultimately you have the long view and you're trying to get a person to a point of deliverance. But the word, the word of God has got to be our standard. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look in verse 9. It says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that ye may be able to discern what is best. How about that? I think that's important. Our love is to abound more and more. That means we become more and more lovers. We just love people. But that knowledge, or that love has got to, uh, manifest in knowledge and deep insight. Now, why, why would we need deep insight when we love? Well, when is the time to, you know, give a kind word, a gentle word of encouragement? And when's the right time to speak a word of reproof and tell somebody they need to get their act together? Both are part of love. They're both part of love. And it seems pretty self-evident that if you're speaking a word of affirmation when you should be giving somebody a kick in the rump, that would be inappropriate. And it's not going to bring forth the best results and vice versa. So how do we know when we're supposed to do one and how how do we know when we're supposed to do another? By this great love that we love people. God can work in a situation and we can have that wisdom of love to know when to do what. I think of God in the Old Testament referring to himself as, I will be what I will be. I will be. 
The idea behind that is, I will be to you, Israel, what you need me to be. If you need my protection, I'll be your defender. If you need my reproof, I'll be your confronter. If you need my love and tender kindness, I'll be that as well. And that's what love is. And so it's within this context that we talk about compassion. There is a certainly a time that we are supposed to be moved with compassion. But if somebody's committing evil, there's no compassion there. That's not compassion. And I, I think this is important. We provide what's needful. It might be needful periodically to pay for the addict's bill, right? It might be appropriate. It shouldn't be a standard, though. We are never helping anybody if we are enabling their sin. And I think that we all need to ask ourselves, is that compassion that I'm showing for a person or is that enabling their sin? And I think that's healthy. Enablement is misplaced compassion. It's misplaced, and our culture is filled with it. Satan uses this misplaced compassion to his advantage. Now, remember, Satan is the great manipulator, the great deceiver. In my lifetime, for instance, I've recognized that uh, when I was younger, it was culturally unacceptable to be a homosexual, right? It was during the AIDS epidemic that the homosexual community actually recognized that public opinion could go very badly for them since AIDS and HIV was ravaging this community of people. And so what did they do? They had a very successful PR campaign against it, against this this bad reputation. And it was through this uh, PR campaign that they presented to the American public this image of the persecuted and oppressed homosexual, that homosexuality not only gained acceptance in our culture, but it is now acclaimed. I mean, it's every day I read another story. Well, such and such has come out. And it drew upon, for many of us, it drew upon, you know, innate desires. I mean, none of us like bullies, do we? None of us do. And I would say that we all hate injustice, don't we? And Satan took advantage of this. It's now gotten to the point where if a parent counsels their child against homosexuality or transgenderism, that's, in our culture, understood to be hate speech. I mean, can you believe that? This is where we've gone. And it was all in the name of this false sense of compassion. And I was thinking about it this morning. Just as God, or uh, in God's word, just as justice is tempered with compassion, compassion needs to be tempered with justice, God's justice. God alone defines Sin and homosexuality is sin. To change our definitions or to justify homosexuality is to enable sin. It's that simple. Now, I'll certainly make the point that we should absolutely have compassion on any person who is overcome by sin. I mean, that's that should be our heart behind this, especially in sexual sin because of the great burden of shame that is associated with it, we should have great compassion for people like that who have gone through that. But for that compassion to be genuine, godly compassion, we've got to be willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved. And that's the true Christian biblical approach to compassion. That compassion is not just a feeling. It is associated with an extension of behavior, of service, that we're helping people. We shouldn't be 
making excuses or, or justifying behavior or, God forbid, changing the word of God to accommodate the lifestyle, style, which many uh, Christians have done, that they see some of the injustices that have been extended to the homosexual community. And they've seen the, the horrible wretchedness that these people have had to deal with, you know, emotionally burdened. And they feel, well, surely God wouldn't approve of this. And so these scriptures that we find in the Bible, they can't be true now, can they? And so we pull out our pen and we start rewriting the Bible. That is not what God wants us to do. The word of God has got to be our standard. Romans chapter 9 says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not up to us. It's up to God. God extends mercy to those he deems uh, worthy of that mercy. And this doesn't mean that God's arbitrary either. It means that God gets to set the standard. God gets to set the standard. The biggest standard that God set is that mankind is abused through sin. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, that God redeemed us back. That's compassion. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Look at verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, this is a pretty amazing record. <laughs> it's an amazing record. I mean, was Jesus just not empathetic for the poor? I mean, what about the poor? It seems like Jesus is pretty heartless here. He's saying, I'm more important than the poor. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, not at all. Jesus is teaching his disciples this. Do not allow yourself to be manipulated by false sentiment. False sentiment. Do what's right, not what others necessarily expect from you. We live in a culture of virtue signaling where everybody's running around saying, look at how compassionate I am. I'm a compassionate person. Here, let me take your money and give it to somebody else. That's compassion, right? That's not compassion. That's bookkeeping. True compassion should never be falsified for the benefit of others. It's hypocritical. I came across this quote, and I thought it was pretty interesting. It says, it's easy to run to others. It's so hard to stand on one's own record. You can fake virtue for an audience. You can't fake it in your own eyes. Your conscience is your strictest judge. It's easier to donate a few thousand to charity and think oneself noble than to base self-respect on personal standards of personal achievement. It's simple to seek substitutes for competence. How about that? You know, we run around and, and we posture for other people and we say, look, I'm a good guy, right? I'm a good guy. And we want our fellow man to acknowledge our goodness. Well, compassion has nothing to do with that. It doesn't care about other people's approval. Compassion cares about God's approval. It's notion of virtue signaling, right? Seeking, seeking to impress others of our virtue. 
God is our judge, God alone. So true compassion is an emotion, but it's more than just an emotion. When we talk about being moved with compassion, it's visceral. It's visceral. It's something within us that moves us. You know, you you think about, you know, just think about a mother whose child is threatened. She becomes consumed with one thing, the, you know, the protection of that child. You, You get the point here, right? Or if that child is is sick, the mother is just overly consumed. You want to, you know, you know, you want to have a light moment with her. She's not, she's not there with you. <laughs> she's with this child who needs her concern. That's compassion. That's compassion. It's consuming. It consumes us. I love that about it. When Jesus was moved with compassion, he was consumed with the object of his compassion. He was consumed with it. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, look at verse 17. It says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The hardening, actually, it was last week. Uh, the hardening of our hearts and and how does our heart become hard? Well, our hearts become hard when we reject God and we follow our own, you know, desires, lusts, whatever. Verse 19, it says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. In other words, they have sinned so much that they've become dead on the inside. You know, there's a term that, you know, I used to hear a lot when I was a younger person, you know, especially a man, you know, the women would say, well, men's got to, men have got to be more sensitive, right? Men have got to be sensitive. So, you know, in my circles that I ran with, I heard sensitivity. You've got to be sensitive. And yeah, I got thinking about it. And I was thinking, well, you know, again, let's define our terms, sensitivity. You know, in my mind, there are two different types of sensitivity. There's a sensitivity that's born out of strength, right? That you have a strong character, modern term that you're self-actualized. You're just not, you know, you're not needy. For a Christian man or woman, it's a person who walks on their own two feet spiritually. They're not dependent. They're not wounded. That they are whole and that they are sensitive to the needs of others because they're pretty much taking care of themselves, Does that make sense to everybody? Right? So they're sensitive out of a sense of strength and wholeness. And then there's the counterfeit, the sensitivity that's born out of weakness and woundedness. Right? You know, I think about, you know, if I cut my arm, well, that wound would be sensitive until it healed. Well, there are a lot of people who are going around talking about sensitivity, and it's sensitivity that's born out of woundedness. And we need to be able to distinguish between the two. Jesus Christ was not a wounded individual. He was whole. And it was out of his whole that he was able to perceive things. And that's what we're looking for. One of the consequences of sinfulness is a person loses their ability to empathize due to the hardness of their hearts. They lose that inner guide of compassion. I think of that record where God says, They draw near unto me with their lips. They honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And that's one of the consequences when people turn their lives over to, you know, debauchery, sinfulness, like many in our culture today have done, 
is that they're in pursuit of feeling, but what they end up doing is they harden themselves on the inside. And a person who's hard on the inside has to rely more and more and more on external pleasures because he has nothing on the inside. And this person is has shut themselves off from the ability to extend compassion because there's no compassion there. It's just hardness. You can't have compassion if you have a hard heart. As I said before, Satan is the great manipulator, and we are supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Love has no ulterior motives. It just is. It is. When we are moved with compassion for somebody, there's not a reason why other than I'm, I just, I'm moved for this person, right? Or I'm moved for these people. It's very simple. It's very simple. Children are moved with compassion. And I, th- I was thinking about it. I-, I think it's important for us to pay attention in our language and to define our terms. Because you have this ongoing battle, I believe, for the proper definition of compassion. You have the one that I talked about, the wholeness, you know, the, that we are moved with compassion out of our strength and out of our wholeness. And then this weak idea of compassion. And unfortunately, It's this latter definition that has infiltrated many of our churches. We need to define our terms. If someone is using a term and it strikes us oddly, we need to have the boldness to ask for clarification. See, that's how Satan is able to infiltrate a community of people. And it's through the language that they use. We need to be able to say, well, what did you mean by that when you use such and such a word? Especially in the realm of emotions, Right. Emotions aren't like physical things. We can't, you know, pull them out and study them. You can't put love over a Bunsen burner and come up with hot love. (laughs) But emotions a lot of times are, you know, not ambiguous, but they don't fit nicely in a in a definition. And a lot of times people will say something one way, but they're meaning something entirely different. And we need to have the temerity to be able to ask that person, well, what did you mean by that? Satan can influence the way a group sees things by subtly changing the meaning or use of a few well-chosen words. He certainly can and does regularly. That masquerades as compassion, and this is manipulation of language, and it's a weakness. As I said before, a compassionate person is a strong person. If you understand anything spiritually, you'll understand that weakness of character attracts Satan. It attracts Satan. We need to be strong, whole people, right? And in those areas where we are actually wounded, we need others to step in and cover for us, that their strength becomes our strength and ours becomes theirs, right? So false spirits gain access to the church through misaligned communication, words that are not defined properly. So be careful. There is an empathy, a compassion within the church today that is not godly compassion. It's not. It's weak and empty and selfish and pathetic. And it's enabling. It's enabling. It enables sin and calls it righteousness. It's not. It has a whining quality to it. Everybody understand what I mean by that? When you hear it, you know, you're like, that doesn't seem right. If you note within this a sense of self-service, you know it's not true compassion. 
because true compassion is selfless. How do we learn about how to be compassionate? By being compassionate. (laughs) That sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's actually getting out there and loving people and working with people. And, you know, I mean, we want to run away from the person who's wounded, don't we? The person who's gone through a tragedy. I mean, what do you say? Get involved. Be that person who sits lovingly but silently next to somebody going through a horrible situation. Don't shy away from that. Take advantage of it. Be that person who goes in there and helps somebody who really has a need. And it's not that you're in there dishing out advice either. It's in there. It's showing up and being there for that person. You know, we have a bad habit in the body of Christ of defining things so much that we never actually get around to doing it. (laughs) I remember I was sitting talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know, I could, I can define love in probably 20 different ways and show you where it is in the Bible. But that doesn't actually mean that I'm loving, does it? And that's important. I mean, we can define compassion, but are we being compassionate? Does it bother us when somebody else is hurting? Does it consume us? Or is it just a thing? Most importantly, we need to learn how to listen. True compassion listens, but it listens with the heart. This is why we need to get to the place of our in our own lives where we are standing on our own two feet and that we're not constantly consumed with our own problems. I've met so many believers who, I mean, they've been believers for 20, 30 years, and you talk to them, and they are just, I mean, they are just oriented towards their own problems. We can't be sensitive to other people's problems if we're so stuck on our own problems. Now, that doesn't mean that there are going to be, you know, seasons in our lives that we go through where we have to, you know, take care of some of our own issues, right? But we have to recognize that we need to be looking outward, not inward, if we're really going to be helping other people. Go to Psalm 84, and I'm going to finish up here. Psalm 84, and look at verse 5. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, God, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. The word Baca is talking about a specific type of tree. The, the Valley of Baca, this is the only place where it is, it is noted here, and it's being used figuratively. A Baca is a type of tree. It's called the weeping tree, right? Um, and it's one that drips resin or gum-like tears, such as uh, balsam, mulberry, or aspen tree, right? It's a weeping tree. And the idea here is Baca means a period of mourning or a period of weeping. So when we're talking about the valley, um, you know, it's like, you know, the psalm where it says, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? It's not talking about an actual valley. This isn't talking about an actual valley. It's, it's when you pass through these times of, of weeping, right? Uh, uh, these pill, these, these people of pilgrimage, when they go through there, they turn these places into springs and, and autumn rains that cover it with pools. In other words, they make those those areas prosper and bless and grow. It says, verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before the God in Zion, before God in Zion. That's something, strength to strength, that there's no weakness in our compassion and love. There's no selfishness, there's no hypocrisy, that that we are moving from strength to strength, that we are becoming better 
and more compassionate and more loving and more outward oriented because we know that God is our sufficiency. Love and compassion, uh, the love and compassion of God are the strongest, strongest things we know. They're courageous. They're hearty. They're magnanimous. They're selfless. When we hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life, that is compassion. So that's what I wanted to share this morning. Uh, let me go ahead and finish up with a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the, the strength of compassion, the ability to go out and share your compassion with other people. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the healing and delivering quality of compassion. That, Father, it's not just a sympathy, but, Father, that it extends to action and deliverance and wholeness. I thank you, Father, that we can deliver people that we come in contact with from this valley of Baca. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for just making us greater than ourselves. So thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And with compassion for the hurting, you reached out your hand as the lame ran to meet you and the dead breathed again. You saw behind the eyes of sorrow and shared in our tears. Heard the Let the children draw near What boundless love What fathomless grace You have shown us O God of compassion Each day we live And offer your praise As we show to Of the 